Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I'm Aaron Cameron. With me, of course, Adam Pawatic, recording live at Real Reit. And thanks to Yardi for sponsoring this podcast. Stay tuned for the end of this interview. We're going to digest the conversation we're about to have as part of the CRE After Show. Our guest today, return guest, Mr. Mike Bonneveld, who is now the president of Skyline Industrial REIT. Mike, welcome back. Thanks very much. Good to be here. So in December of 2018, which is almost four years ago now, we had Mike on and we had a good discussion about his history, his background, how he ended up at Skyline. At the time, he was doing a couple different gigs part industrial, part apartments. So if you want to go back and hear more about Mike's background, please go and just search through uh, our archives. You can find it back from December 2018. The benefit of that is it allows us to fast forward and we can get more to the nitty gritty and talk about the fundamentals of the industrial marketplace. This is a reward for the regular listeners that we get right to the good <laughs> Yeah, let's go. Let's do this. So Mike, first, welcome back. Happy to have you. Thanks. Just really quickly, let's just do Skyline Industrial REIT. Portfolio size, geography, just kind of talk about it from a high-level metric. Sure. Easy to remember because I just did it in the panel I was on. So the Industrial REIT's been around for probably 11 years now, I want to say. We're about a billion to five in assets, 55 properties. We're in five provinces. We are now virtually 100% industrial really heavily focused on the warehousing logistical space. In about two hours, that portfolio size is going to jump by about $300 million as we're closing on uh, a big acquisition out in Alberta. Can we pause and wait two hours so that you can talk about it publicly? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Next time. Okay, darn it. <laughs> Have you been glued to your email all day on your cell phone? I mean, yeah, there's that's been a, a lot of last minute document sign, yeah. right? <laughs> so thank, thank God for DocuSign on my yeah. phone so I don't have to go find a fax machine somewhere. <laughs> but our industrial REIT, as I said, it's been around for 10, 11 years. And when we first started the portfolio, it was kind of seeded with a couple of kind of small assets. And then we did a big portfolio acquisition of from Conundrum. So it was a portfolio of Small Bay Industrial and some other assets. Some, you know, there's a couple of office assets in there and some rats and mice. And so, you know, we kind of pruned some of that first couple of years. But I would say Q2 last year, Mike McKenzie and I, so Mike, who was the previous president of the Industrial REIT and uh, has subsequently retired this year, kind of made the decision to take a bit of a switch. And so we decided to sell down virtually all of our small bay industrial stuff. And a lot of it was like 1980s, 1990s built, so lower clear heights, lots and lots of tenants. And it was predominantly Ontario and Quebec based. So we were, I'm just now finishing that process. So we've sold down about $480 million worth of uh, small bay since that point. We're now, as I said, I've got a couple more that we're just finishing up, but more little one-offs here and there. I want to talk about Small Bay. I guess we'll just do it now. Why? Why dispose of those? That, yeah, that isn't, that like the, isn't that like the $18 per square foot rent kind of units, you know, when you get those uh, little what, ones? You know what? Ask me in five years whether it was the right decision or not, because there's lots of groups, obviously, that are acquiring that. Yeah, we're hearing the opposite almost, that everybody's trying to build a 300,000 square foot warehouse with 40 foot clear ceiling, but nobody's got any interest in building a small base. So there's more demand for it. A hundred percent. And it like, there is really good demand. We saw that really kind of take off in the last 24 months, just like the balance of the industrial market. But from our standpoint, the way we looked at it was it's older product. So it obviously needs a lot more capital, you know, be it roofs or facades or parking lots and stuff. It's also super, super management intensive, right? You know, your staff have to be on it. You're turning, we have a, a complex that we sold one of the first 
buildings that we sold as part of this process in London, Ontario that I had bought from Kingset probably eight, nine years ago. And it was 350,000 square feet at 120 tenants in it. So you can like it's that's like, like an apartment. You're an apartment guy. Mike, <laughs> totally. you just, just get your apartment staff over there and run it like an apartment building. And it's true. And that's kind of way the way we kind of drifted into that small bay, right? It was operationally, it runs the same way. And guy, and there's lots of groups that are have that same mentality that like, okay, we've been buying apartments and that's, you know, getting more and more challenging just as pricing moves. So they're moving over to that small bay. It's like, because it's the same kind of concept, right? It's just, you got to be on it. You got to turn it. Chasing um, down rents. Exactly. Bad debt, com- the larger bad debt component on your balance sheet. Yeah. yeah. And I think where, when we looked at it, our view was, and this is where I, you know, I think in five years, we'll see whether we were right or not, is that older product, our view was going to be a little more sensitive to when the market did turn, right? You know, we didn't know, obviously, that interest rates were going to move the way they did. And I do think that's where you're going to see more softness in values over time in that older generation stuff versus kind of the bigger brand new logistical facilities. So did you underwrite condo titling and selling them off individually? You know what? We looked at that, especially in that project and tried to, you know, and it can be very, very profitable doing that. The issue becomes though, is if you get 80% sold and now you own seven units and the rest of it you don't own, right? And now you're part of a big condo board that you don't have control over and no one wants to spend any money. And you're trying to like, well, how do I, how do I sell my remaining seven units when the rest mm. of the tenancies don't want to kick money in to fix the parking lot, right? And, so, And I guess on that basis, it's demand to buy smaller units like that is not as robust as the leasing market for industrial. Like, is that a real risk? Do you think you can end up holding a couple of units? And Yeah, I think, I, and I think, you know, like, and, and I don't think that's just on the industrial side, right? If you look at when guys are doing it on the red side, right? You know, you buy a rental building and try and convert it and roll it into condos if you can get the approvals to do it. The risk is you get stuck, right? And we've got one project that we had converted and it just like the arb between rental value, this is going back probably seven, eight years ago, the arb between rental value and condo value was like a double. And so- What do you mean by arb? Just I'm not following. So, you know, if you cap out, you know, cap the income on the rental unit, let's say the value of the apartment was 150 grand per door. We could sell those units. You had to renovate them for three and a quarter. Right. Right. So, so you're saying arbitrage. Yeah. Sorry. You, sorry. Yeah, no, no, I'm just, sorry, yeah, just yeah, yeah, yeah. But I know. Okay. Okay. But yeah, that's fair. But on that one, we're now, and so that, I think that was a 75 unit apartment building. We still own eight units. And because it was an existing rental building, you know, you can try and incent tenants and find them new places and to try and help them move somewhere else. But lots of people just don't want to move and you're not allowed to do anything to say, well, you got to move because I'm going to make too much money, right? You don't get to say <laughs> that. So all the ones we that we still own in that complex are long, long-term tenants that will probably stay as long as they can, you know, so till they have to get moved into yeah, retirement home or something. It becomes operationally inefficient. Oh, totally, yeah. right? Now you're operating, you know, your, your property management team's got eight units all through a building yeah. and trying to run that and give them the same service as when you ran the whole complex, right? So- just a bit of a challenge. So. Yeah, understood. Interesting. So you have been disposing of assets. And how recently would be your last disposition? I just want to get a feel for you know the sale market on the industrial side. Sure. So as I said, we probably started that process you know, June of 21. We recently closed on a one-off asset four weeks ago, five weeks ago. And it was more a redevelopment asset. It was office industrial outside of Kitchener-Waterloo. But the, I would say the larger industrial pockets that we sold, the last one of those we did would have been in Montreal. We sold about $100 million of assets there. And then probably a couple of weeks after that, closed on the sale of 
a $50 million portfolio that we sold in uh, Cambridge, Ontario. So then how, how competitive has it been on the buy side? And then when you're selling... Yeah, we're trying to get a sense yeah, of where the market yeah, June, is. I mean, let's, well, let's back up. We're lenders. Offers. We're lenders. Conventional interest rates, you know, for a really good quality asset is five and a half percent, you know, plus or minus 10 yeah. here or there, right? But it's five and a half percent. So conventionally, your cap rates have to be six. I know they're not. Where are they? So, you know, I think we got lucky on our timing for our disposition program because really the majority of it got done way before we saw any of this rate movement. So the pricing that we achieved was well and above kind of what our expectations were. But to answer your question on like when you're looking at an asset as of today, given where rates are, I think there's there's a definitely a difference in terms of how we're at least pricing assets, but it has to do with really how do you get at the rent, right? So you're right. If you've got five and a quarter, five and a half percent interest rate, theoretically, you're going in yield should be higher than your interest costs so that you don't have negative leverage, right? As you know, we were listening to this morning, The Economist, but where the portfolio that we're closing on this afternoon, and we put it under contract pre the 100 basis point hike, adjusted for that as part of the kind of waiver on the deal, but it's we're negative leverage going in. It's not significant negative leverage, but you know, when we looked at that, it was, we believe we can grow the rent by 15% in the first two, three years, just because of rollover. And I think what we've seen in terms of, you know, even really, really good quality assets, you know, if you get a long-term tenancy, if the rent, if you can't get at that rent for a material period of time, it has to be north of five, right? Like there's a couple of assets, like there's a couple in Montreal, a couple in, in Alberta and, you know, like center ice, triple A quality covenant tenant that went no bid because the developer you know, his end number to, to make that math work wasn't 5%, right? He was thinking more four. And so because that moves so much, but buyers couldn't, you can't get at the rent for some of these like 10, 15 years. So the developer is either taking a write down on where he was going to sell that asset or he has to go and refi, but he still has to refi in the same market, yeah. right? So some of those assets are going no bid. There's a couple of deals that are being done right now that are getting a little creative in terms of trying to buy down that rate to synthetically offset the debt cost, right? But you know, I think some of the developers that you know, you've locked up your AAA tenant and you fixed price contract and everything looks great, and you're like, I'm going to sell it for a four cap at the end, and if that's a five, right, your math's yeah. massively offside. I right? find it so, interesting because there's some rationality to it, and again, quickly just comparing to the apartment market, it feels like in the apartment market there's some irrationality still. Like you still hear these, <laughs> and maybe it's just the brokers that I talk to, <laughs> but you still <laughs> you still hear this like, no, 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 if four cap makes sense, and, and yeah, I know it's CMC financing versus conventional, but even CMC is four and a half. So conventional, like again, the conventional wisdom, it would be five caps for apartment, but you're not seeing that logic versus it sounds like at least in the industrial space where there's a little bit more just rational market forces. Is that yeah, fair? I think, like, I, I think that's the case. I think depending on the res project, right? Like if, again, I think if, if you can get at the rent, right? So if you've got good rollover in, in an apartment building, which based on occupancy levels across the country right now. Or well, but you know, like, dropping, but that's right? even so, like you got hundred units and they roll over 15 to 20% a year. It's going to take you four years to get that rent up versus an industrial building. You know, like the lease is terminating in a year and a half. And I know yep. that market rents are 16, not the eight in place. Like it's a really simple, hundred percent. I can jump yeah. to this NOI in this amount of time versus apartments is like, I think maybe totally. if I get lucky, know, right? right? So, like, which was why I would think in the, at least in the industrial world, it could, it's a, one plus one equals two, which is, it sounds like is more, yeah. more logic to it, perhaps. So, yeah. and, and that's the thing, it, it, you know, like a lot of the groups that are still active now and looking at stuff, it's really, 
they're looking at it, it's and a broker we deal with a lot, which I won't give them a, a quote, but because um, <laughs> he probably wouldn't be happy with me. But it's really, you know, when you're looking at assets that are coming out, it's really how many months of negative leverage do I have to endure before I get there? Right. And if that's yeah. too long, then I'm not doing it. And then the right. offset, how many months of positive leverage following that do I benefit from? Exactly. And I think you have to assume that once you hit that point of inflection, then you're good, right? Especially like it, it's hard, you know, you're not, I don't think anyone's pricing that in three, four years, you know, rates are going up again and you're going to have to do that catch up, right? So if you're a $5 rent today and you think it's 10, 10's the market and you get out, as you said, right in three years, then that's my gap, right? And what does my you know, what does my five-year ROE look like? What's my 10-year look like? And for when we're looking at that stuff, if you do have to take on that negative leverage for a little bit is what's the backstop value of that, right? Like I'm buying, if I'm looking at a brand new asset, good quality, am I buying it for 225 a foot or am I paying 300 a foot for it, right? And so I think if there's not that end value upside, then you probably aren't doing it. Yeah. Which even... um you, know, you, you would have been looking at it that way prior to the concept of negative leverage entering the market. I mean, I can't imagine that you would you know, put significant value on year one return on an asset if you're looking to get into it for you know, a 10-year time horizon. It's just now, of course, you know, maybe you were doing the math before on reduced positive leverage and then an upside later in the deal. Now, of course, the market shifted. It's, it's a full-blown negative leverage, but that's still a, you know, a thorough way of looking at an acquisition. Yeah, I think you're right. Like uh, it's, you know, you're before, you know, 12 months ago, right? It was you're still using all the same fundamentals, but it was, okay, yeah, I've got positive leverage, but you know, how skinny can I look at it to make it work? But that 10-year bondable asset, you know, that's AAA quality, those deals were getting done and guys were saying, you know what, I'm okay. I'll take a 4% return on that because it still makes sense in the context of what my cost of debt is, right? Now, like just if you're a cash buyer and you're looking at it differently, that may make sense, you know, or a high net worth family that's looking to place capital. But for us, and I, I'm assuming most REITs or most guys that are, are leverage players, like that asset doesn't work anymore. So there is a fair element of being sidelined on some purchases. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, where if we look back over the last 24 months, because, you know, like, so call it through COVID, right? There was that the first four or five months where I think everybody looked at their business and said, like, our, our tenant's going to pay rent, right? What does our business look like? And I think most people in the real estate industry, especially in on the industrial side, you know, by August, September of 20, we're like, okay, we're good, right? We're going to get covered off. Tenants are going to pay rent. So the business is solid. And then a lot of what we found was a lot of the institutions and a lot of the public guys just were kind of, were waiting. And so we actually bought quite a bit between, I would say, September, and this is across all funds, but September of 2020 till the middle of 21, just because there was just less competition and we saw opportunity. And then you had all of a sudden kind of, you know, Q2 21, everybody's back. I think, you know, people stopped working from home quite as much and, you know, actually started answering emails. And so there was a little more activity, but the last, with the rate volatility now, we're back at that. It's not as much, but there's still a lot of people on the sidelines going, I don't know where it's going yet. You know, I think we know where rates are Hopefully, as we talked about, are stabilizing somewhere right now. But I think values, some there's still some uncertainty what that looks like. So, so where are rents today? Average, pick a market, Vancouver or Toronto. It is very different, as you guys know, right? Like market to market, we're not super active in the GTA market. I've heard a number of recent leasing deals, easily in the high teens, yeah. number of deals. I don't know, like I can't say with specific sizes, but into the twenties, Vancouver. You are definitely in that snack bracket. The sample size is less, and you know the the square footage obviously in most kind of industrial warehousing 
in Vancouver is smaller, but the rents are absolutely there. But in terms of the stuff that we're looking at, and it's, it's really, I find it's interesting when you compare the acceleration is everywhere, but it's different markets are at different stages. Yeah, I, mean, for, I know the GTA is the exception, right? It was six bucks four years ago. Now it's 18 bucks. Like it's just insane. Versus I think yep. Calgary, Alberta, I think it was 10 bucks. Now it's 12. Like it, it has been much smaller of an yeah. increase, still an increase, but you know, pretty much almost inflationary, quite frankly. Yeah. And in Alberta, I think it's been, you know, there was, you know, you had a bit of the Alberta hangover just from 2015-ish, right? With the price of oil. And so there was a, you know, as the rest of the country seemed to be, was going in the right direction, there was strong demand there, but we weren't seeing this leapfrog effect on vacancies dropping like half a point, you know, every four or five months. We're now seeing that. Like the, someone had posted some national vacancy numbers, I think effective Q1 out in Calgary and Edmonton. And I know that those are off now from the stuff that I just, what I was talking to a couple of guys yesterday, like they're off by half. So those markets from an occupancy standpoint have caught up. If you know, they're not quite at the 0.5% or 0.8 that Toronto's at, but it's not like it's heading that direction. But the rents haven't gotten to the, as you outlined, the rents haven't caught to that point, right? Where, you know, we had bought a portfolio in Calgary two years ago, two and a half years ago, just at the beginning of COVID, we kind of firm closed that one out. And on that, when we bought it, we were kind of budgeting relatively flat rents in that portfolio, call it averaging seven fifty, eight bucks. We're now, when we're doing deals right now, those are now in the 10s, 11s, 12s. But as, as you know, if I look at Montreal right now, where we'll talk about it later, the, our development pipeline, you've gone from a market where that was for 30 years or more was five, six bucks. Just, you know, that's best in class. It was never getting higher than that. And now there's new, on new product deals in the $14, $15 and they're getting done all over the place. So can tenants, is there a breaking point? Is kind of like what I want to ask. Contenders keep paying these rents that go up and up and up. And I understand industry by industry, you know, the line item of rent can be a smaller percentage of a total operating budget. But do you do you get feedback from tenants that there's a breaking point here? I think there is. I don't know what it is. I think tenants are at this point, I think most tenants are well educated. They're, you know, the rent shock started hitting Toronto, Vancouver 18 months ago, even before that, right? So, you know, that discussion in 2019 and 20 in some of those markets was happening. And that was the big, like, what do you mean my rent's going from six bucks to 12? I think the shock is gone from most of those tenants. And now it's just tenants are trying to figure out how do they make it work, right? But most of them are, it's, they don't want to pay it, but there's just no availability across most markets. And so it's really them securing, because they if they don't have the space, then they don't have a business, right? And so what we're seeing, and I think, again, this is across the country is, Growth in nodes that you know would have been really satellite nodes two three years ago, but you know companies that don't have to be center ice Brampton or center ice you know in the West Island of Montreal are pushing 20, 30, 40 kilometers out and separating how they're managing their inventory and logistics program. Well, much like uh, housing affordability having a similar pattern on where people uh, live, I guess uh, drive till you can afford it uh, yeah. <laughs> applies as well. Yeah. When I, and I think one of the other things we were talking about earlier today is just employment within the warehousing sector, right? Like it's in a lot of urban markets, a lot of companies, just like everybody else's business, are struggling to find people. In some nodes outside, like when you get out to those outer kind of communities, there is more access to labor. And, you know, like it's most, you know, these aren't manufacturing facilities that need 300 people. Most of them need 15, 20, 30 people, depending on the size of it. 
but you still have to have people that are coming in all the time and a lot of often they're 24 hour operations too totally right so you know so i think there's a bit of that you know the push out is partly from a rent cost savings but part of it is just access just because i think companies are struggling to find staff to kind of keep that business going so how many square feet you had um is it 1.25 billion under but what's, what's the total square footage of that do you, uh, do you know we're as of right now, we are just <laughs> under 7 million. And by hopefully by five o'clock, if ever, all the money gets transferred properly, we're about nine. Okay. Hope your lender's good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's not us, I know. <laughs> if it was, I'd say you'd be totally fine. <laughs> and where is vacancy in the marketplace right now? I mean, I know it's like, like nationwide. I know, I know it's very geographically specific. Yeah, where is it ballooned all the way to 2% somewhere? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's like 1.1 1. 1 or something, right? Yeah. Like, I, yeah, I think the national national number I just saw was like 1.5, right? In terms of vacancy. So, so availability levels and, probably. And what do you that. guys have in your pipeline as far as development? So we're in our, our development pipeline is really being geared around kind of two markets over the last couple of years. The primary market being Montreal. We've done uh, one deal in Calgary, which is now done and fully occupied. But we've got about 3 million square feet at varying stages of development. We've got a number of parcels that are just going through the entitlement process and site plan approval. But we're, I'm hoping by end of 25, all of that is, has been put through. And uh, we've also just recently, last week, closed on a, a single parcel where we're partnered with a couple of groups out in Halifax. So we're bought 22 acres there looking to build about 400,000 square feet on that site. And are you building on spec for your uh, all or most of this? Yeah, in Montreal, absolutely. You don't want to be that guy that gets tied in and then all of a sudden can't yeah. sell it in an interest rate environment that can't make it work. Well, you know what? And it's it, Montreal, again, traditionally wasn't really, from my experience, wasn't really a spec build market, although I, I don't think most markets were five, six years ago. We've had, so our partner there is Rosefellow Developments. And we started off kind of with a couple of individual projects. We spec built both of those. Leasing went very, very well. We then invested into the first Rosefellow fund with another group, out of private equity group out of Montreal. We are now fully committed on that first fund and just signed the second fund. But And I used this analogy just a little while ago is that we've got three projects that are ready to go. We've got one where steel's going up, the other one they're putting piles in right now. And the third one, we're just waiting for the tenant's lease to expire, which I think is this month. And then they're vacating and we're demolishing the building. Between those three sites, we have about 700,000 square feet of total leasable space. And we only have 90,000 of that 700 that's not already committed. Right. So the issue is not to tenancy. I mean, what's the, um, where I'm getting at is vacancy is really tight. Rents are maximizing. I don't know. We, like, there is a ceiling. We don't know what it is. It's not 40 bucks per square foot. I mean, you're at, yeah. well, you could 16, 17, 18 on the high end. Maybe it's 25. I don't know. Like picking yeah. that, who knows, right? But it's getting there. And there's a ton of development. Like you've, you've got a ton, but I, I was looking at the numbers from one of the research firms that there is an you know, exorbitant amount of, amount of new builds coming online in pipelines, entitlement process, like land's been allocated to it and it's coming. Do you feel like the, you know, you're kind of in an inflection point where it's just kind of that perfect storm with demand from e-commerce and warehouse requirements, but, you know, there's going to be so much new product coming in that it's going to equilibrize, if that's a word, the market fairly quickly with, you know, the plethora of new builds that are in the development process. Yeah. And I- or put it another way, let me make it simpler. Can the demand keep up with the amount of supply that's coming online? I think in the near term, yes. Like uh, the number I think I saw for 21 was there was 42 million square feet absorbed nationwide and there was 36 million built. And if you roll that forward, and again, I was just, can't, I can't remember who put this up, is there's another 40-ish million 
plan to be completed for 2022 or 23, can't remember. Of that, 60% or 40% was already pre-leased. And so at the end of the day, like they're absolutely right. Like development of like to be a developer, you know what? You have to be super optimistic all the time. Everything's going to be fine. And so, you know, will markets get overbuilt? Yeah. At a certain point, right? The demand's going to quell. People will still build. But again, we're at a like a 1.5% vacancy level, right? We have to... You could quadruple it and it wouldn't matter. Well, totally. Yeah. Like, and if you look at the, and I don't have the number handy, but if you look at the total inventory, industrial inventory across the country, you know, we can build what we're building like the collectively and lease only a part of it. And I think it takes four or five years for us to get to 5% vacancy, right? Like it's just the demand over the last number, couple of years has been so much. And I think part of the demand, like there is a bit of a, there's always a bit of an overshoot, I think on this where, you know, people think they need more than they do. And there's a bit of a pairback, but we haven't built product in most markets for 15, 20 years, right? There's been, there's pockets that get built, but there's been an undersupply, especially in places like Vancouver, Montreal, Halifax, that just haven't seen supply. And so I think, and I want to say the next 12, 24 months, I'm not concerned that there, you know, there's a big correction coming. But like anything, things smooth themselves You're, gonna, you're keeping your finger on the, on the pulse, making sure. Yeah. But yeah, no, that's fair. There's not enough development pipeline to impact a 1.1% vacancy. Yeah, yeah. And, and, it, and if you look at the geopolitical things that are going on, right? Like, you know, between Ukraine and China, the amount of onshoring that's going on now versus five years ago where, you know, there was so much more being brought in from overseas. Yeah, the deglobalization impact. Exactly, right? And, you know, COVID's proved this, whether you're, you know, you're getting PPE or you're, you know, you're buying toilet paper online, right? is that if the company doesn't have the inventory, they can't give it to you. And so, and they can't, so they can't make a profit. So you're seeing this increase and it's not, I don't, I think a big chunk of it isn't just this temporary, oh, I don't know, like we're worried about what happens tomorrow. It's the life is changing. Like we're not the old model of keep as little as you can in the warehouse and get that inventory, you know, from business school, right? Like get your inventory turn number down, you know, like as low as you can so that you're, you've got less money tied up in that. I think that model is changing permanently. And so as a result of that, even if companies aren't selling any more product today than they did yesterday, you have to have more space just to accommodate for that change in business model. I guess one other positive too with a new development is the build time in industrials. You know, it's not like you're delivering office skyscrapers where it can be a seven, eight, nine, ten year build. We're going there though. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, okay. We're actually, I'm going to float that idea by Mike in a minute. But yeah, so it's not, it's not like building office towers where you're trying to predict the market seven years down the road. I mean, I, I've seen industrial buildings go up. It seems you just kind of snap your fingers. I mean, approvals notwithstanding. There's four walls uh, and like, a ceiling. What's yeah, how yeah, complicated by, is by that, By the right? time you're dumping in the real money, like it's very quick. So if there is, you know, we determine that we're overbuilding, the ability to turn that tap off is a little quicker than if we decide we're overbuilding offices. Or use apartments. Like that's where my brain is going, of course, is I'm thinking about, you know, the the two hottest asset classes. Apartments, you know, we're also at zero point something and it's going to take us 30 years to build enough housing. Even if we were trying really, really hard, which we kind of are, but not all of us are, versus in the industrial space, I feel like it it might be 10 years, maybe five before you really hit that point of, okay, we've found that middle ground between supply and demand. Yeah, and, and you're absolutely right. Like it's, you know, like the industrial warehouse box, you know, the generic one, is super simple, right? It's again, I'm not a contractor, but like it's steel walls, concrete floor, asphalt. Yeah, I mean the biggest lot. complication is how thick does that floor need to be for its usage, right? Is exactly. it six feet or eight feet, right? And so. there there are some changes, like we're starting to see changes right now. Like there's a number of groups more on the consumer product side, a lot of the grocery guys, where you know they're bringing in these robotic pick and pack systems, right? Which are 
unbelievably sophisticated. We're dark warehouses, right? Is that the that well, concept? You know what? That like it's a name for some of them, but you go in and I toured one last year that we were looking to acquire that we missed out on. But there was the building was a two hundred million dollar building, like a five hundred thousand square foot facility. The tenant, who's a large multinational grocery company, my understanding was is the robotic system that was inside that, which covered like an area of 200,000 square feet was three times, there was three times as much money invested in that robotic system. And even within there, they had, you know, there was people managing a bit of the, because the, just the loading and unloading, but they had 35 engineers, software engineers, robotics engineers that were there on and off because they had to make sure that everything was running smoothly. And these, it was super sophisticated. Like there's, these robots are running something like three millimeters apart from each other, back and forth, picking up, like reading the orders that are coming in online. It's unbelievable. It's crazy. So, God, I want to get, I want to get two or one of those. Yeah. yeah. And they've probably got all sorts of different like cross dock facilities and cold storage and yeah, like they, everything. So everything's kind of coming in one shop and, and yep. back out, right? Let's take a moment to be a little lighthearted. And I want Aaron. <laughs> it's not lighthearted. It's is, real. Is this, this is real. It's happening. This is the future that Aaron. It's happening. Uh, One day I'm going to be so. 90 and it's going to happen. And I'm going to say, I see, I told you so. This is this multi-story industrial. I still have this thing. Can okay, let me paint the picture for you. I think, I can't remember. We, I probably didn't have this stupid idea when we first interviewed you. So I'm curious what you think. And this is what this is. We're joking, but it, this is the, the serious sort of philosophy behind it or theory behind it that, you know, downtown Toronto, I know land prices aside, a 30 story building, full industrial with robots uh, up and down. Not robots. Yeah, yeah. Well, robot. Yeah. Robotic center, of course, distribution facility, but then delivery systems through drones coming off the top. You're right downtown in the center. It can be three minute delivery to all the condo the users around the core. Does that seem just like a high rise industrial? High, are you, are like you like in? Are you far in? <laughs> it's fine. Like uh, when you're just because they think it. about the rents, like you could, you could probably charge 50 bucks a foot and then all of a sudden that's better than office right now. Right. Yeah, so not last mile, yeah. zero mile. This is zero yeah. mile. Except you still, you still got to get the product in. Right? Yeah. No, I mean, you're going to have obviously got the drone issue is the one that yeah, but yeah. it's coming like you're already seeing it like you're seeing the testing is occurring right yeah. down in the states right so well, there, pizza funny. being delivered by drones and all sorts of stuff it's, well, ha- like it's the, happening the, right the, so like the r2d2 you know like mailboxes yeah. that are rolling around yeah when you describe that so i remember i want to say four three or four years ago at the real estate forum there was a speaker that came and i think his title was he was a futurist and one of the things... Oh, yeah, that, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the things they were talking about, right, was, you know, they're talking about the movement out of most people having a car, right? So what do office buildings and condo buildings do with these massive downtown parking garages, right? And I do think that part's coming where you just don't need one because you're going to be able to wave down a, you know, a driverless car and it doesn't make sense to have one. And the concept that he was talking about was all of the... And you think about the thousands of acres that are underneath most urban cities that you know, theoretically, aren't you know, if you don't have, everybody doesn't have a car, you don't really need. Yeah. But his concept was that that became the warehousing. Urban industrial. Exactly, right? And that way, you know, you had, because you've got loading facilities to kind of get stuff in, right? Like all big office buildings have truck availability for packages and stuff to get in. But, and then you've got the whole network to bring it up from the loading areas through elevator systems. And all that was kind of being transported and shipped, you know, just in time to your condo or you're off, you know, your tacos, you know, to your desk at work, but all via these like robotic mailboxes. So 
that's your competition, Aaron. Then that's right. That's, uh, yeah. I just had another brainstorm idea. How about we convert these offices that we're never going to use to apartments on the outside, and then some industrial vertical in the middle that goes up and down the, the elevator. Oh, to solve shed. the floor plate. Yeah, problem. to solve the floor plate yeah, problem. Yeah, okay. There you go. Okay. <laughs> I like it. It's that mixed use, like that. You know, like I think it was like back, goes back to like when I was in university, right? The planning, you know, the long-term planning for modern cities, right? Was these multi-story, you know, towers? Mixed well, go to Tokyo. So go to Tokyo. There's retail for forty stories, right? Yeah, like, it's, it's like nuts. Hong Kong, right? Yeah. You can go to like a restaurant on the seventh floor, right? Yeah, go play pool on the twelfth floor. Go have soju or whatever the drink is, or you know, on the twentieth floor. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah, go buy some records on the twenty-third floor. Like, it's it's crazy like that, right? So. Oh yeah. These ideas are too good. I'm not going to publish off, this up. I think we're off topic. Yeah, yeah. I think we're getting off topic. Yeah. What are we here to talk yeah. about? The future with Mike Bonham. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was a fun rabbit hole. I, I, I appreciate everybody sticking with us for that one. But I thought we'd just take a moment to... Like Adam and I have done too many of these the last couple of days. We're getting a little loopy. Okay, let's yeah. focus. Focus. Yeah. Growth strategy going forward next 24 months. Are we in an opportunity period now again? Is there... Not that I was asking how you're outsmarting your competition, but you know what are you doing to stand above? You know, I think for with the transaction we're hopefully closing today, that kind of deploys all the capital that we raised through all the disposition programs. So we're kind of back at that kind of equilibrium from a capital stack perspective. But I think going forward, I think the fall for us is going to be a bit of a, okay, let's digest. Bring in 2.2 million square feet in Alberta is a big chunk for us. It's a big increase in the portfolio. So we need like our management leasing team to get in and get a hold of that. You know, we're going to continue to kind of build out with our partners on the development side. So 3 million square feet, call it at 250 bucks a square foot. It's a big chunk of capital to kind of go out the door on that side. I continue to like the Alberta story from a rent standpoint. I still think, you know, we're when the big chunk of deals for good quality, you know, A, A minus space is still single digits. And I look at Toronto pricing and Montreal pricing to me, it may not get to that point, but there's still a lot of wind in the sails there. There is a lot of product coming in Calgary, especially. So you got to keep an eye on that because you know, you've got land availability kind of going in most directions. So there's lots of capacity there, but I see us spending more and more time out in Alberta. I do like Halifax and Moncton. We're not as I said, we just bought a development parcel out in Halifax. Booming town. That's uh, it is, if you have, if you haven't heard, by the way, you're listening. You haven't heard Halifax is growing like crazy. Yeah, and it's I think and I think from a rent growth standpoint, last twenty four or the last twelve months, sorry, it's only behind Montreal right now. And there's big demands. There's big changes to the cargo port out in Halifax right now that have been going on. And with I think the changing direction of where cargo's coming into as less. Somewhat less product is coming from China. More is coming from a lot of European countries and also Southeast Asia. There's a different direction that port access. So I think it's basically a little let for, again, from what I've read and understand is that if it comes from most of China, it comes across the Pacific. If it comes from other places in Southeast Asia, it comes across the Suez and across the Atlantic. So there's a bit of a shift from what I understand about, you know, the amount of cargo that's going to be coming into Montreal and Halifax. And that's why these ports are growing and building up. So we like that story. So we're going to continue to spend time out there. It's, you know, again, hopefully with some stability in the debt side, right? We can, I think most people are going to figure out where that looks like. You know, that's a really interesting angle. Just the 
focus on the macroeconomic perspective and how that implicates very macro. That's yeah, and how that implicates just the demand and supply for industrial use because you're looking at supply chain changes. I mean, you already talked about the deglobalization, but just even looking where goods are coming in, and obviously if they're coming in off a ship, they need a place to be put, or there's going to be companies that are going to be distributing those goods from those places. And so you're trying to get ahead of that curve. Yeah. And you even the stuff coming still coming on the West Coast, right? There's been a shift. A lot of the goods don't really come into Vancouver, right? They come into the port, whatever, uh, the name's escaping me, like seven or eight hours north. And so the goods there get shipped out by rail and that rail line goes into Alberta. It doesn't go down to Vancouver because there's just not the warehouse capacity to ship it there anyway. So a lot of goods are getting put, you know, go into that port, that northern port, come down by rail, go into Calgary. They get broken down and put on trucks and it goes back to Vancouver, right? Which doesn't make much sense. But, but <laughs> I know, obviously, I there's what? smart people looking at it, but it seems crazy. What does, and it, but I think part of it, and again, like someone smarter than me explained it to me, but the travel time to the northern port in BC, I think was a couple of days less than going into Vancouver. And then the Vancouver port is so busy with cruise ships and all kinds of other stuff is cargo boats can wait in the harbor for days and days and days. And so- and There's I, probably I, fee challenges too. I would suspect oh, you totally. charge more to deliver in totally, right? high, high density just, areas. And I think it's, you know, I, I, again, I don't know the way the shipping business works, but assuming that the more time your goods have to spend on that boat, the more you're getting charged. Time is money. So oh, yeah. if you can get, if you can save a week and a half, even though you might have to go do one extra leg from a trucking standpoint, like that's material, right? So- we're almost done, Mike, but I wanted to bring this up because I think it's material and we, it deserves the attention. Let's just talk about just decarbonization of the portfolio and just the industrial use. And it, it does get not negative connotation, but it gets a lot of focus because it's, it is really obviously industrial brings to you, you know, word, you know, a lot of sure. use of carbon for lack of a better definition. Is that something that you're focused on? I'm sure it is, but what is it that you're doing to really make sure that decarbonization and just, you know, focusing on the energy is part of your strategy going forward? So within Skyline, we have a clean energy fund, which is really focused on acquiring solar contracts that our investors put capital into. We've recently bought two biogas facilities. Again, it's a different fund than what I run. But the benefit of that is, is so we've got this you know, solar expertise and energy expertise, and we're rolling some of that over on the industrial side. So all the new build billings that we're doing, you know, we're trying to make them as energy efficient as possible. Obviously, from we're putting in EV chargers in every new industrial building. We're setting it up, you know, right now, there's not tons of demand from a tenant standpoint to have 50, yeah, 50 I, chargers. That's got to be blowing up soon, right? Everybody will yeah. have an EV in 20 years. So. Oh, oh, I agree. And so we're at least setting up the spine for that so that along the front side where you're going to get employees coming and parking, it's, you know, we've got maybe have three or four heads set up, but we have the ability to put in double, triple that. One of the interesting things we're doing, it's a partnership that on the Halifax land is we're going to build a zero carbon building out there. And so there's a, the contractor that we're partnering with has expertise and has built one of these before. And so that's solar panels to help offset the energy demand from the tenant. It's, and it can fully offset? Is that the, obviously, if you that's, your carbon? Yeah, that's, yeah. that's, I think that, and again, I don't know it completely. I think to get the zero carbon has to fully offset the use. But again, it's a logistical where there's not, you know, those buildings don't- a smelting don't, factory or they something? Don't, yeah, yeah, they don't suck a lot of power, right? So in, they all they often have, you know, like light sensors so that the lights only go on. Yeah, right? just smart building so, systems, right? Exactly. But they've got skylights in them to let natural light in, which also helps reduce the amount of lights you need on. It's better for the employees, right? As opposed to being in a box with no windows for eight you hours You don't know if it's sunny or rainy or wind, hurricane or what. Yep. Yeah. And they're also doing, they're doing radiant floor heating in the building, which is a much more efficient than forced air units up in the, the top of the building. And then there's a special design on the loading doors, which reduce when the loading doors are opening and closing when 
trucks are coming in reduces the amount of heat escaping. Mm. So again, it's the local expertise out in out in Halifax. So we're really excited about that and hopefully being able to kind of bring that concept and do more of it. So do you see that equating to a better lease rate because the net to the tenant ultimately is less as a result of some of these offsets? I do. I, I don't think every tenant will pay more. I think there is some offset. It's, you know, the hydro's a little bit. Yeah, you'd um, think there's some benefit, right? The, the corporate image would be probably the biggest value, I imagine, to a tenant. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and especially like, you know, like a lot of the, given the type of product we're building, you know, you're leasing to larger entities, more national, you know, multinational companies. They, they, need they it. want to, they and, need and, it, yeah. and they need to do it. They, yeah. They're them, like all their business are saying, we're doing more, right? And so if you have, or at least our view is, is if a tenant has a choice of, I'm going to go into a zero carbon building, or I'm going to go into- Save two a, bucks a square foot or a buck a square or foot. You, or may, like, and maybe. our hope is, is that it's flat, right? Like if you're, you know, which one are you going to go to? We're assuming you're going to go into this one all the time. And I think you're going to see more and more of it. I know there's, you know, there's a couple of developers. I know they're building zero carbon rental buildings right now. There's a couple in the GTA, I think, that are underway. I think it's trending that way. Lenders want to see it. You know, it's the same reason, right? They want their balance sheet to be reflective of the profile of, of the employee. Yeah, the benefit, right? so, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and it's the right... And I, and Tenants I, are and demanding I, it. Employees are demanding it. Investors yeah. are demanding it. It's just, it's ripe now everywhere. Yeah. And I think from an investment standpoint, long-term, I think, you know, if you're going to buy again, kind of like the ordinary building or the zero carbon building, which way are you going to like, right? So I think long, it's not here yet for sure, but I think long-term there should be a premium on acquiring that asset, especially if you're an institutional buyer. Well, yeah, Aaron and I have, you know, gone on to the podcast before about it, but uh, yeah. And for you trying to attract capital at some point, that will be a very big factor. And yeah. Canada is not quite there yet, but if you look at Europe, it is a big factor there. If you're trying to attract significant capital, you yep. need to have a very strong ESG platform. There's, you know, that's just table stakes at this point. So how far behind the curve is Canada in that one? I mean, a handful of years, but you know, you blink and it will go by. Yeah, I agree. We're, we are playing a bit of catch up, right? Compared to the, you know, how Europe, especially countries like Germany and France, right? They're much, much further ahead of that, but at least we're heading in the right direction. And you'll be there and ready with your zero carbon building. It's perfect. <laughs> at least one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Mike, we are out of time. I know you've got uh, other engagements here too. So we are going to uh, part ways now, but thanks so much for you know coming by the podcast booth here at the Real Re Conference to share your thoughts with us. Mike, thank you. Perfect. No worries. Yeah. Thanks, guys. And, and don't make you. it three years again before you come back to see us. <laughs> you know? it's, uh, we'll see you sooner than that this time around. Sounds good. Thanks very much. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast after show where Aaron and I discussed the discussion that just took place. We really got off topic there. We, uh, yeah, it was a rabbit <laughs> hole. I mean, absolutely. It was a fun it's one. It's all my fault. It was Sorry. a fun one. I guess sometimes you got to realize that it's not just three guys joking around. It's, uh, and, you know, and it was interesting. I actually went to some interesting places because Mike, uh, <laughs> Mike really pulled it back into you know, something that might be uh, resembling reality. But. If you're one of our listeners, if you liked that, if you hated that, put it in the, in the review, please. I'd like to know what the, uh, we just lost a bunch of listeners. Right? There's yeah. like six people yeah. listening to this right There's now. nothing wrong with the moment of levity here and there. You know, we did <laughs> warn everybody so. it was going to be a little bit silly, but uh, yeah, all right. It's, uh, it's nice having Mike on again. It, you know, the carbon zero, carbon neutral development, I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah. You don't, I mean, obviously, People have, you know, greening of buildings in mind, but you don't get to that zero number too often industrial. That's, and he, I guess he did highlight too, it's not a heavy industrial use, but either way, you know, that's like, that, that's the progress that could get us uh, through. The um, skylights was an interesting one to me. So like, what, you, how many of industrial 
tours have you done and never seen a skylight in the oh, ceiling? Yeah. Never. No, and I was like, no. I guess that's more expensive and that would be why. But you'd think, you know, to put a couple skylights or all around wouldn't be exorbitantly expensive and would add a whole bunch of, I don't know, energy. Atmosphere. Atmosphere. Yeah, yeah that's what I'm looking for. <laughs> to the natural lighting. Yeah. No, I mean, again, we don't know the pricing of this. Maybe it is a disaster for these buildings, but yeah, it seems like just a small thing to do that would have a real benefit to the people that are going to spend yeah, they're eight hours from a, from a mental health perspective, even yeah. just that you're in there and you can see what's going on on the outside. If you're going to spend right? 20 years working in a warehouse with or without a skylight, I'm definitely picking the skylight. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, the other thing that Mike said that, that was kind of curious is just, you know, comfortable, it sounds like, with negative leverage to a, t- to a degree, right? It's uh, just a formula, really. It's yeah. If you, can, you know, and if you average it over a 10-year time horizon and you're net positive. And, yeah. And you brought up the point that it's not just, you know, hoping like in an apartment building that somebody leaves, like, you know the exact date and you've probably got a good handle on what you're going to get in new rents. Yeah. You can run your, your DCF formula pretty quick and just put it right in. There's no real assumptions. You kind of know exactly what you're going to return yeah. over that period. And it does right. answer the question that we've, you know, I've been asking repeatedly on this, which is how do you deal with negative leverage? It's like, well, you deal with it short term, you know, <laughs> long term, not so great, but uh, a lot of buildings out there. I, I think it's, I mean, it's curious just how the industry just immediately just absorbed that as a reality in our business now, right? Like he said, like before you'd always be buying things at a spread to interest rates that was really tight, but it was always positive. And you kind of knew that and you're trying to grow that difference. Now it's just negative and you know that and you're trying to just make it to a somewhat feasible spread. My dad works in real estate and he told me, this you know, predates my time paying any sort of attention to real estate. The negative leverage was fairly common at some point in the distant past in, in terms of uh, the real estate landscape. And this idea of positive leverage is only the last couple of decades. I don't know. I'm not calling anybody out to fact check my dad. I'll take it at face value is true. But yeah, so it's not like it's not some observed concept that's never been realized in real estate. It just hasn't been recently. Well, and I wonder if that goes part and parcel with cash holders and just you know, the distinction now, we never thought about it before, but now there's this six between levered buyers and non-levered buyers. And yeah, didn't, you didn't yeah, really kind of used to be have a disadvantage, to make, not give you an advantage because yeah. your all-in return is going to be better in the cash basis. Yeah, very fascinating. Interesting yeah. world. Yeah. He, um, the other thing that you kind of mentioned was, you know, the rent going up in these tenants and some of the difficulties there. It just reminded me of a conversation I had a while ago um, with the, is a, is a leasing manager for one of the big pension funds and he's been there for, you know, two decades, I guess, maybe a little less. And, you know, he used to spend all his time talking to his tenants, trying to hold on to them when rents were four or five bucks and he knows them all well. And, you know, you fast forward, you know, to 2021, 2022, and you're talking to them about lease renewals and you're doubling rents on them. And there's a kind of a, a sense of they're getting, getting the short end of the stick. And he feels, you know, <laughs> bad because he would have worked with these people to keep them as tenants when they would have had a lot more advantage in the market. But just the reality, like you can't leave that money on the table. It's, you know, the unfortunate uh, part of it. It is. It is one of those things that you, we keep, asking, right? We keep thinking that there's got to be like a squeeze in play or at some point, like a tipping point, like we talked with, with Mike about. But I mean, for that individual, you just referenced that is feeling like they're getting the short end of the stick. There's somebody else happy to pay that rent Yeah, to come in. And that's, that's so there's, it's not all, it's most. And so therefore we haven't really come close to that tipping point yet. And the other thing I was thinking about when he's talking about the robotics cost being, you know, multiples more than what the building is, you know, there's a tenant that could withstand a significant rent increase because their overall operational cost rent is probably not a huge portion of it, given that their uh, robotics expense is enormous. So maybe for tenants like that, there is more of a growth opportunity in rents than ones where rent really kind of defines their budget. Yeah, it will really be interesting to see how that plays itself out. Like there may be this, there's sort of, you know, transportation logistics that you can get a certain 
max rent versus warehousing, which is a different max rent. And, you know, yeah, you might even see just a split between those. Stratifies the market a bit into yeah growth opportunities, but maybe uh, getting granular in your investments is probably not the worst thing to do. Yeah, exactly. Just thinking about it as a buy the pound kind of purchase. All right. Thanks for listening. Thanks for first national power of the podcast. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.